This is because he is risen. It's not enough. In fact, it's never enough. Do you ever feel that way? No matter how much you get, it's never enough. No matter how much you achieve, it's never enough. You buy something new, like my new dress clothes. Very nice. My wife said to me, I want you to dress like this every week. I said, Lord, help us. We'll end up with eight kids if I dress like this every week. Lord, have mercy. You buy something new, you're like, yeah, it's all right, but it's, it's never enough. Right? Someone's got a nicer suit than you. It's never enough. Chances are you feel this way often. In fact, if our culture is any indication, most of us feel this way most of the time. And my little daughter Zoe and I set out yesterday to Metro to prove it to you. Even Metro proves the fact that we are insatiably in search of something more. Now, the photos you're about to see are not stock photos. Zozo and I actually went with my phone and shot every one of these ourselves at Metro yesterday to prove to you that it's never enough. The broccoli gave me an idea. Broccoli on screen. Do you see it? Nod at me if it's there. Is it there, Lukey? Okay. So on the left is the organic broccoli. On the right is the pedestrian broccoli. This is what caught my eye initially. You'll notice that the pedestrian broccoli costs 99 cents, but the organic broccoli is 3.99. Because, you know, pedestrian broccoli is never enough. So we have two different types of broccoli because your soul is empty. Next, we go to the apples. 12 different kinds of apples. I mean, isn't this a little bit overkill, wouldn't you think? One kind of apple would be enough? How about the apple that was native to Ontario? They're not even in season right now. But we have 12 kinds. Many of them covered in wax and made nice and shiny because an apple off the tree with a couple of spots on it, well, that wouldn't be enough. 37 different kinds of bread. We didn't make this up. You'll notice that it gets progressively worse. We didn't plan it, didn't we? Zozo and I were literally walking through, and every station we filmed was worse than the one before. That's when I knew that Jesus was on this sermon illustration because I was like, he knew that it would get worse and worse and worse and worse. We didn't know that starting out. 37 different kinds of bread, not including the English muffins or bagels. <laughs> Let's be real. Who needs 37 different kinds of bread? Nobody. It's never enough. 45 different kinds of toothpaste. Apparently, we all have very stinky breath because there's all different kinds of toothpaste. There's like the extra shiny kind. There's the max fresh kind. You can buy toothpaste with little bits of freshness in it. Some apparently will make you beautiful like a Hollywood starlet if you use it enough times. 45 different kinds of toothpaste. You ready? 193 different shampoos. Can you? 193! This is where it got insane. You know, when I go to the Y most mornings with Nikki early, I just use like the bar of soap for my hair too. I'm like, oh, soap is soap. <laughs> the point is to get it clean, right? 193 different kinds of shampoo. It's the end of the world. There are 204 different kinds of chips. <laughs> 204 
different kinds of chips. I mean, really, who knew? Did you know that that's how sick our culture is? 204 different kinds of chips. But thankfully, there's only 23 different ice creams. Mind you, it's brands. 23 brands of ice cream. This is the one I'm going to go buy. It's like a very fussy, Guelphish kind of ice cream. <laughs> you have to hand in your conservative card, though, before you buy it. It's $8.99. I can't afford to be a member of a political party and eat that ice cream. 23 brands. And in each brand, there was an average of 6 to 10 types. So conservatively, there was about 220 different ice creams. Broccoli, apples, bread, toothpaste, shampoo, chips, ice cream. Everybody's looking for more. We are prisoners of an insatiable appetite. And don't start thinking you're the exception. Because you shop at these places. And you've probably thought, well, I wonder... It would be nice to have shinier locks. Prisoners of an insatiable appetite because nothing is ever enough. Enter the Christian genius. Okay, here's where the genius of Christianity comes in. Christianity looks at all of us people running around buying all of this stuff to fill the hole in our soul. And it says, you do not need 193 different kinds of toothpaste. All you need is Jesus. And that's kind of Peter's point in 1 Peter. Here's chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Reading from the English Standard Version. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. My dad, who was here this morning with my mom, always told me that when you preach good, the angels listen. We get that idea from 1 Peter. That the gospel is so great that even angels long to look into it. What you really need is Jesus. Let me quickly give you a little background on 1 Peter. Maybe you never read the book 
We're going to be in it for the next 13 weeks, so maybe start reading the book. I've been reading the book through every week for months now, three months now. So by now, the book is very familiar. If you do that, you will find that when you come to church on Sunday, God will have already spoken to you some of the things that he's going to speak to me and through me to you when we come to each subsequent section. And that will build your faith that God doesn't just speak to me because I am not a holy man. I'm just a man. God speaks to you also. So 1 Peter, a little bit of background. It was written by Peter. Okay, there are no scholars who dispute this. It says right off the top, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. If Peter wrote it himself, then he wrote it between 62 and 63 AD in the city of Rome. That's where he was, okay, nearing the end of his life. We know that he was martyred during the reign of Nero sometime in 64 or 65 AD. So if Peter himself wrote this book in its entirety, he wrote it in Rome between 62 and 63 AD. Now, some scholars think that maybe Peter didn't write it himself because the Greek is more polished than we might expect from a Galilean fisherman. And so some think that perhaps he had a scribe assisting him. In fact, you'll see when we close out the book that he credits his scribe. And so it's possible that Peter spoke these words and a scribe transcribed them in the king's Greek, if you will. If that was the case, then it's possible that the date is still somewhere in the mid-60s. There are some scholars who believe that it was written at a later date. That later date is pegged somewhere between 70 to 90 A.D. Either way, if Jesus was crucified somewhere between 30 and 35 A.D., the point is 1 Peter was written very recently after the events that we commemorate at Easter. It was written to five districts in what is today modern Turkey, northern Turkey. Not provinces in that these districts were not self-governing, but distinct locales. And most of the scholars I studied believe that these locales had um, ethnic groups in them with histories that went back centuries, so that the kind of um, tension they were experiencing as they walked out their new Christian faith was rooted in their ancient history as distinct people groups. So northern Turkey was where it was written too. It is essentially an encouragement to Christians in those five districts to persevere while being discriminated against because their allegiance to Jesus was causing them to become more and more countercultural. This is why 1 Peter is a um, book that resonates very strongly today. It's very applicable to us today. Okay? I don't want to get too political about it, but if you've followed um, what our government has been doing with the summer jobs program and the way in which they have been trying to enforce people of faith uh, to state Uh, things that they might not otherwise state in order to receive money from the government that they fund with their taxes. I mean, I don't want to get into it, but it's pretty ugly. Okay, I uh, wrote a letter to our prime minister when he was first running for office because he indicated that he would not allow members of his parliament to vote their conscience on moral issues. This is something that has never been done before in Canadian history. So if I was in his parliament, I could not vote no to abortion. I could not vote no to other issues of conscience. And so I wrote him. I said, hey, I like you quite a bit, and I think you might bring some fun change to our country, but I could never vote for you because of that one thing. Now, what this does is puts me at odds with the prevailing sensibility in our country today. Just a little example of what the people to whom Peter was writing were experiencing because their Christianity was making them walk out of step with the culture around them. In fact, some of the Roman writers from this time who were concurrent to 1 Peter's writing called Christians um, pig-headedly obstinate. I was like, sounds like some Christians I know. Right? And it made me repent a little bit because when I run into pig-headedness in God's church, I tend to react against it. But then I read this and I'm like, huh, Maybe we could use a little bit more pig-headedness in God's church. 
Either way, he's writing to encourage those who are out of step with culture because of their increasing allegiance to Jesus. And he's saying to them the following, endure suffering, keep your eyes on the prize, and be encouraged. Okay, this is the big idea of 1 Peter. Endure suffering, keep your eyes on the prize, and be encouraged. Now when you hear that, you should always ask yourself, well, if I'm keeping my eyes on the prize, Todd, what is the prize? I'm so glad you asked. Verse 3 and 4 tells us who is the prize. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's start with good theology. God is the prize. Okay, God is the prize. You are not the prize. You are not the point. God is blessed. Blessed be the Lord God. Okay? God is blessed. God is the center of the universe, not us. If you take that one point and apply it, it'll change your life. Right? If you leave here today and you live in a way that puts God at the center of the universe rather than yourself, your life will radically change. Most of the time, most of us spend most of our time putting ourselves at the center of our lives. When you do that, you're living out of sync with the way things truly are because God is the prize. He is blessed. He's at the center of the universe. What you really need to do in light of this is remember your place in the story. And your place is the place of a child. right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is Father. You are child. He's your Father. You're His child. And He's a good Father. Okay, some of you may have had nasty fathers. And so the father imagery is difficult for you. We need to move through that. All of us are fallen, frail, and broken. We need to move through that brokenness and look upon our great and glorious father who is good in everything he does. This is evidenced in the fact that he has shown you great mercy. Okay, the actual word here in the Greek is vast mercy. For he has shown us vast mercy. Mercy, according, verse 3, to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, God is blessed. He's your Father. He has shown you vast mercy by giving you in Jesus the second chance of all second chances. In raising Jesus Christ from the dead, God has given you a whole new opportunity at life. He has shown you in Christ, in fact, a whole new way to be human. And the point here is that he has caused this. Don't miss this, right? God is the active one here. God is the one who has done this. Now, I'm emphasizing what God has done, so it may leave you feeling like you have nothing to do. And when it comes to achieving salvation, that's true. But having heard that, you may think, well, Todd, what then does Easter have to do with me? And I want you to know that Easter is definitely for you. Just like Easter was definitely for a prostitute named Mary, whom we see in John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple. They were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. 
Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Don't, don't, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. In John's account of the resurrection, a prostitute is the first one to see Jesus. So never allow yourself to feel disqualified. And never allow yourself to feel like there's no room at Jesus' feet for you. Jesus rose again from death for you. He went to the cross for you to suffer and die in your place for your sin. But he did not stay dead. The third day he rose again victorious. And that victory that he achieved is your victory as well. In Jesus, you've been born again to a living hope. You've been welcomed into a whole new way of being human. I want you to get this. As you follow Jesus... You don't have to follow the ways of our sick and twisted culture, a culture that would seek to sell you 193 different kinds of shampoo to fill the hole in your soul. You don't have to go from high to high anymore. Because in Jesus, you've been born again to a living hope. In the Greek, to a living expectation. This means that the expectation of Jesus' victory, which will be revealed at the last day, is enough to keep you humming. It's enough to keep you going. It's enough to get you up in the morning. Okay, You don't need a high because you serve the most high. right? You don't need a new purchase. You don't need to move from purchase to purchase. You don't need to move from experience to experience anymore because you've been born again to a living expectation. You live in constant expectation of Jesus' ultimate victory, a victory that, as I just said, is ultimately yours as you are in him. And when I speak about the victory of God in Christ, you ought to ask yourself, well, what then does that victory mean? Verses 4 and 5 tell you what that victory means. You have been what? Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, next slide, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Simply put, you're old money now. Because of Jesus, you're old money now. Right? You've been born again to an inheritance. Except your old money 
the allotment that you've been given in Jesus will never perish. It'll never run out. Apparently, one of our Candelon ancestors at one point was the wealthiest man in the world. I was like, dang it, somebody spent that money because it didn't come to me. Right? Unlike my fool of an ancestor, our allotment in Jesus is never going to run out. It'll never perish. It'll also never become filthy. Right? You've heard the term filthy rich? No such thing in Jesus. Right? The inheritance that you've been given in Jesus will never become something disgusting. And it will never pass away. Why? Because it's guarded in heaven by God himself. Why is he guarding it? For a salvation so great that he's waiting to reveal it at the last day as the climax of history. Okay? If you've ever wondered why you don't experience the fullness of biblical Christianity all the time in the here and now, it's because God is reserving some for the eschaton. He's reserving some for that great and glorious day when Jesus Christ will return in glory to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate his kingdom which will have no end, a kingdom in which you have a place. So he's saving the full revelation of your salvation for a big finish. It's so important to him that he's guarding it himself. So a few things we can take from this. Three, to be specific. One, the fact that you're old money. What does this mean? This means you can relax. You can act like an heiress. Maybe go out and buy yourself a new outfit because you're old money now. You can relax. You're taken care of. Isn't that freeing? So you can do what you do from joy, not from duty. Wouldn't that change your work week this week? You can go to work like you're an heir of all things in Christ. Whew, that'll make work a lot more fun. You can trust the process. You cannot worry about it so much. You're like... God's got this. In fact, he's holding some of it back for the last day. Okay, he's got this, so, so I'm good. I can trust the process. You can stop striving because you're an heiress now. You're an heir now. And in light of that, you might as well spend your days doing what God made you to do rather than just trading away the hours of your money for dough. Right? Would a rich person do that? Would a rich person, you know, trade away the hours of their life for money? Or would a rich person do what God put them on the earth to do? That's what they would do. You're a rich person in Jesus. So get out there and act like it this week. Okay, if you're doing something that makes you miserable, stop it and do what God made you to do. Be who God made you to be and do it with all the power and passion of your soul because he is the one who gave you that passion in the first place. You're old money now. Secondly, the fact that your inheritance is imperishable, this means that what you've been given in Christ will last. So this means you can stop being insecure. Right, Because what you've been given in Christ is going to last. Can nobody take it from you? Can nobody break it down? Can nobody ruin it or turn it into something bad? So you could chill. You could chill. You could relax. You could stop being so insecure. Right? And because your inheritance is imperishable, you should immediately stop filling your life with perishable goods. What a waste of time. What a waste of time. You already have an inheritance that is imperishable, so stop wasting your money on things that will. You'll notice as you mature into deep friendship with Jesus that you will need less and less. You'll find more and more contentment showing up, and you'll need fewer and fewer things to make it so. Why? Because you'll be participating in your undefilable inheritance that God is already guarding in heaven for you. Uh, I don't really need anything. I've got Jesus. 
I find it harder and harder as I get older to ask for stuff for my birthday because I'm like, I don't know. I don't need anything. I got Jesus. I don't need anything. Thirdly, the fact that you've been an, given an imperishable inheritance that's guarded by God means that you don't got to fight to defend yourself. So you can be a peaceable, winsome, friendly, lovely people. You never got to fight anymore because God is guarding your inheritance. So you can go out and love people because nobody can do anything to you that will steal your inheritance because God himself is the one who guards it so you can walk in peace. Why? Because God's completely in control and he's holding you in his heart for a very big finish. Let's look at verses 6 through 7 to see why we should be happy. In this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And doesn't this stage look amazing? It's just amazing. I so appreciate those of you who made this happen. Why should you be happy? Because God, the blessed center of the universe, is your Father. He's shown you vast mercy, giving you the second chance of all second chances in raising Jesus from the dead, causing you to live with constant hope and expectation of Jesus' ultimate victory, which means an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance for you, which God himself is keeping safe until the last great act of history, when he will rule and reign in righteousness forever, and you with him as kings and priests to our God, according to Revelation 1.5. Because that is your day-to-day reality as a Christian, suffering is endurable. There's the whole thesis of 1 Peter right there. Wouldn't even have to preach the rest of the book. If those six or seven points that I just outlined are true in you, then and only then is suffering endurable. Put the thesis this way. Because he lives, we can live. Amen? Because he lives, we can live. Because he has been victorious, we will be victorious. Hallelujah. This is the root and foundation of Christian hope. Because he lives, we live. Because he has been victorious, we will be. So bring it on. Nothing phases us. Do you see? You can live a completely unfazed Christian life as you walk in what Jesus has accomplished in his resurrection. That unfazability is what people truly notice about Christians. Can you testify to this? Do you remember before you were a Christian? And maybe the first real Christian you met seemed completely unflappable. Wave your hand at me if you met a Christian like this. Let me see. Has anyone ever met a Christian like this? Like somebody who's like, doesn't matter what happens to them, nothing seems to bother them. I, mean, I, could, I could preach like a black preacher here if I was allowed for a second, but I'm not. Right? <laughs> what could I say? Well, they could steal your hope. Or they could steal your health, but they can't steal your hope. Right? You could lose your job, but they can't steal your joy. You know? You can lose a family member, but you know in Jesus you'll see them again someday. So the trials of life in light of who Jesus is and what he's done... Not so bad anymore. Bring it on. Nothing phases me. What's with that guy? How come he's always so happy? What's with that girl? How come nothing ever seems to bother her? Yes, she weeps, but not like those who have no hope. Yes, they got knocked down, but they get back up. Where's that come from? It comes from Jesus. Look at verse 7. 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. People will see how you live, and at the end of days when Jesus returns, they're going to kind of put two and two together. They'll be like, oh, that's why. And the result of putting two and two together will be praise and glory and honor to God as everyone realizes how good God has been to you. Okay, make no mistake, Christian. Your belief confounds the world. People don't understand why you do what you do. When you follow Jesus truly, they don't know why you give your time for free. They don't know why you turn the other cheek. They don't know why sorrow doesn't destroy you. They don't know why you don't worship money. They don't know why you think 193 shampoos is crazy. It confounds them. Why? Because they know you're normal, right? They can look at you and tell that you're not crazy, but yet you believe and live according to a crazy kind of faith. Your belief confounds the world because you rejoice in Jesus. Verses 8 through 9 testify to this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you rejoice in him. And worship team, I'm done. This is where the Christian proves to the non, to those who are on their way to tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, that the Lord is good, that He is real. The joy that inhabits the life of every true Christian is absolutely incredible to the point that it cannot be explained in words. That's why I couldn't pray at breakfast this morning. I said, Nikki, you're going to have to pray because I can't. Because I had a joy unspeakable and full of glory that the moment I began speaking, I was cut to the heart as I contemplated my risen Jesus this morning. I don't know about you, but I heard the weather report on Friday saying it was going to be cloudy and ugly today. And I said, you don't know my Jesus. And so when I woke up this morning and I saw blue skies and the sun in the sky, I said, that's exactly as it should be because my Jesus rose from the grave this day. Hallelujah. And listen, that kind of sunshine is born in the heart of every true believer. And it's so glorious that nobody can put a finger on it and they can't explain it. In fact, it's so amazingly glorious, and glory means heavy, that it feels like it weighs a thousand pounds. The weight of glory. All genuine Christianity ultimately works itself out as joy. Why is that? Because you're blessed. Why? Because God is blessed and he's your father. You've been shown vast mercy and you are being worked on by someone else. You don't have to save yourself. You've been born again, given the ultimate second chance and raised up with Jesus to a living hope and expectation. You are the ultimate old money heir, old money heiress, and you enjoy an allotment that will never perish, never become filthy, and which will never pass away because it is guarded in heaven by God himself through faith for a salvation so great that God is waiting to reveal it at the climax of history itself. You are, in light of this, exultant and full of joy. And because of that, your suffering is temporary and is turning your faith into something more awesome than gold. And that's why people will look at you at the end of time and glorify God because of how incredibly kind he has so clearly been to you. You are and will be the evidence of God's goodness, which is why you love him even though you can't presently see him. And which is why your joy is beyond expression and so filled with the life of God himself that it feels like it weighs a glorious ton because my friends you are saved and have more than enough because he is risen